Welcome to Alamo Square. You should be at the corner of Steiner and Hayes. I want you to keep walking down Steiner. Just keep walking down the hill. I'm Liz Gaines. I'm a writer and I live pretty close by. I'm always out walking my dog around this area and people stop me and ask for directions to the full house houses. I send them in the right direction, but I always think to myself, this neighborhood is so much more interesting than just the painted ladies. People come here and miss what's most compelling about this place, the neighborhood story. So that's why I made this detour. The painted ladies are beautiful, but the Western edition is much more than that. All right, stop for a moment. You're looking at the painted ladies on your right, also known as Postcard Row. Combine the slope of Alamo Square Park, the cheerful row of Victorian mansions, you've got your very own perfect photo op, just like the opening credits of that old sitcom, Full House. By the way, the Full House family wasn't actually supposed to live here. Their so-called address was a mile away. The painted ladies were built in the late 1800s. The guy who built them started with the large one on the left for his own family and sold the other six. Since then, some pretty notable people have lived in them. The second from the left was the home of the writer Alice Walker. She wrote The Color Purple. More recently, one of the co-founders of Facebook bought one. It's easy to see the appeal. They look about the same today as they did a century ago, which is true of very little else we'll see today. We're about to walk through a neighborhood in which almost nothing has stayed the same. It's normal for stuff to change in a city. That's just the way things go. But this neighborhood, the Western edition, it's a little bit different. The big changes here weren't gradual. They hit like seizures, an earthquake, a racist government pronouncement, a mass suicide. That's the story I'm going to walk you through today. I'm gonna to show you what's beyond the painted ladies. One way to tell the story of how this neighborhood has changed is through the stories of those who left it. People talk a lot about evictions in San Francisco, like there's something new, but it's been going on forever. In the Western edition, there's been 150 years of evictions and displacement. So as we walk today, I'm going to tell you about five evictions, five moments in which someone was forced to leave and their absence transformed the neighborhood. So let's get started. I want you to keep going down the block. Wait for me on the next corner. So let me set the scene of our first eviction. It happened way back when San Francisco was just becoming a real town, the gold rush era of the 1850s. Back then, this neighborhood was just an outpost at the edge of the city. That's why this was called Western Edition. It was the westernmost edge of San Francisco. Back in the gold rush, there was one guy who owned all the land around here, but he was also deeply in debt. In particular, he owed $500 to someone named Dutch Charlie. So Dutch Charlie said, I'll forgive your debt if you give me $100 and all your land. So that's what happened. So this Dutch Charlie guy, he was chief engineer in the San Francisco Fire Department. He was known as a courageous firefighter, but he fought a lot more than fires. He beat up regular people. He beat up police officers. This one time, he beat up a cop for bringing him a summons after he shot a dog. But time after time, no matter how much trouble he was in, his friends in high places would get Dutch Charlie off the hook. People around here hated that Dutch Charlie could get away with anything. So vigilantes ran him out of town. When he came back four years later, a rival had taken part of his land. So Dutch Charlie shot the guy, burned down his house, and somehow convinced a jury that it was self-defense. 
but he wasn't able to hang on to everything forever. The city of San Francisco made plans to put a park here. And though Dutch Charlie battled in court for 11 years, a judge finally ruled that Alamo Square belonged to the city and not to him. So let that be a lesson. Not all evictions turn out badly. These first few blocks I'm going to show you, you'll see Victorian after Victorian with perfect paint jobs. But then we'll turn a corner and you'll see that every era since they were built has brought a wave of change. You should be at the corner of Fulton and Steiner. You'll see a red fire post sticking up from the sidewalk. From here, we want to end up by that big apartment building with the three garage doors. So you're going to have to cross both streets in whatever order makes sense with the lights. Meet me on the corner. There's one particular view I really like that you'll get as you walk across Fulton. In the middle of the street, steal a glance downtown at the Dome of City Hall. Isn't it neat how it's framed there in the middle of the street in the distance? That's where it was rebuilt after the earthquake. All right, you should now be on the corner. There should be three garage doors on your right. I want you to continue down Steiner with the painted ladies behind you. As we walk down the street, I'll point out a couple of historic houses. The first is a very nicely kept Victorian at 908 Steiner. It'll be on your right on this block. As you approach, look for the house with the boldest and prettiest paint job. This is perhaps the oldest house of its kind in the neighborhood, and it's gone through its own set of radical transformations. Stop and check it out when you get to number 908. All of these old houses have their own stories, but let me quickly tell you about this one. It's most famous for when an artist named Maya Zack lived here in the 60s, because she repainted the house in crazy colors, inside and out, and attached a 10-foot-long papier-mâché alligator to the facade. Everyone started calling it the Psychedelic House. But before that, it was a homeless shelter. And after that, it was painted white with shag carpet. It's only recently it's been restored to its old-fashioned glory. Keep walking. We're coming up on McAllister Street. It's a four-way stop, so you can cross whenever you want. Meet me on the other side. So I come down this block all the time. It's on the way between my house and my dad's house. And I sometimes see these stacks of paintings on the sidewalk. But I never actually stopped to find out about the paintings until recently. The artist is a guy named Christopher Duke. But everyone just calls him Duke. His main subject matter is the Western edition. If you see any paintings up ahead, that's Duke's work. And that's also his music you're hearing. Alright, you should be on the other side of McAllister. Stop walking when you see a yellow house. It's number 1030. I've said before this isn't the scenic tour, but I don't think Duke shares that point of view. His version of the neighborhood isn't drab. It's bright and colorful and vibrant. He gives you a window into his point of view. His canvases are actually the glass of discarded old window panes. Go ahead and look through any of his paintings if they're out. If you don't see any paintings, look around for an old pickup truck. Sometimes Duke stacks his paintings in the back. Duke used to be a jazz musician. He moved out here about 15 years ago from Kentucky. But eventually he found himself homeless, living out of a van, spending his days painting neighborhood scenes. You know, I was possessed for at least three or four years where I couldn't do anything but just paint. I couldn't smoke a cigarette. I couldn't hardly use the bathroom or anything. Ever since I came here, I've been painting San Francisco. Duke paints here with the room entirely dark and a headlamp on his head. He told me the dark helps him focus. And so I could turn off all the lights because I only want to see what I'm painting. I don't want to see nothing else. 
right now and I'm seeing all this chaos around me. The color is yellow, blue is red, or whatever. I don't want to be seeing The only thing I want to see is the color I'm going to use. Duke told me he'd be happy to talk to you if he's around. So if you want, try calling out to him through that side door to the right. Behind there is the former garbage room that's now Duke's studio. You can pause me if you'd like. When you're done with Duke, keep walking down Steiner. As you walk, take a look at the pretty lavender house across the street. It was the childhood home of the renowned violinist Yehudi Menuhin, back when this was San Francisco's Jewish neighborhood in the early 1900s. He soloed with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra at the age of seven. Menuhin was just one of the many famous musicians to emerge from these blocks. We'll talk about the others soon. On to the next eviction. Take a ride at the corner and walk along Golden Gate. After the earthquake, one of the biggest groups that moved to Western Edition was people of Japanese descent. I was looking through old newspapers and I found an article worrying that Western Edition was becoming more of a Japanese town than an American one. To prove his point, the writer made a whole big list of Japanese-run businesses that's actually pretty helpful as a historical record. It included 30 shoemaking shops, 28 house cleaning companies, 33 restaurants, and 9 pool halls. So that all sets the stage for the next eviction of our detour, the forced removal of Western Edition's Japanese population during World War II. Racism and fear exploded on the West Coast when the Japanese Navy attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order to relocate 120,000 Japanese Americans. They were forced to leave their homes to go to internment camps, and at least 5,000 of them went from the streets we're walking on now to the camps. Their businesses were boarded up, and their belongings taken by the government. And after the war, few of them returned home to Western Edition. When Japanese Americans moved out of Western Edition, African Americans moved in. They came for the jobs in the shipyards. Between 1940 and 1950, the black population of Western Edition grew by something like 12,000 people. The next intersection coming up here is Fillmore. You should see a McDonald's across the street. We want to end up right in front of the McDonald's sign. The great African-American writer Maya Angelou grew up in this neighborhood. She was a kid when all the Japanese people were evicted during World War II. Where the odors of tempura, raw fish, and cha had dominated. The aroma of chitlins, greens, and ham hocks now prevailed. If you couldn't tell, that's her reading from her book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. The Asian population dwindled before my eyes. No member of my family and none of the family friends ever mentioned the absent Japanese. It was as if they had never owned or lived in the houses we inhabited. You should be on the bricks in front of the McDonald's sign. Orient yourself so McDonald's is on your right. We're going to walk down Fillmore and look around at the buildings a little. When Maya Angelou was growing up, this was just becoming an African-American neighborhood. And it still is an African-American neighborhood. But the character has changed a lot from then to now. Over the next three blocks, I'll tell you some of the story of how that happened. Pretty soon you'll be walking by one of the only buildings left that was here then. It's the big brick building on the corner. It provided power for city trolleys. 
stop when you get to the corner. In 1907, local merchants built elegant curved steel arches at every intersection along these blocks of Fillmore Street. They stretched from all four corners to meet in the middle, and they were filled with bulbs that lit up the street below. Stop at the corner and look at your phone. You'll see a picture of the old arch that was on this corner. Now, look up at the corner of the building that faces Turk Street. See those metal brackets? I'm pretty sure that's where the arch was attached. It was beautiful, but they got taken down during the war for scrap metal. Okay, so you're at Turk now. Cross the street when the light allows. We're going to keep walking up Fillmore. A little past the corner, just past the end of the blue curb that's marked for the handicapped parking place, out in the middle of the sidewalk is a brick marker. It says, Billy Holiday, jazz singer, staying at Bop City. So let's stop by Billy's plaque for a moment. So remember the World War II transformation that Maya Angelou described? The African-Americans who'd poured into the Western edition during the war years bought and rented homes and opened businesses here. That included the best music halls in the city. And one of the most famous clubs they played at was the one in this marker, Jimbo's Bop City. We'll see Bop City itself near the end of the detour. For now, keep walking down Fillmore. We'll stop at the community center up ahead. I've talked to a lot of people from Western Edition about the different eras they lived through here. The guy who gave me the most vivid descriptions of how vibrant it was in the 40s and 50s is an octogenarian named Jack Biancolana. He moved here as a kid during World War II. It was like another world. You used to hear music constantly. There'd be the jukeboxes would be blaring out of every place up there. And it was all good music. It, it was like you started walking in time to the music after. About now, you should be at the West Bay Community Center. It's got a big red awning. The St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church is down at street level. Stop outside while I introduce you to this neighborhood in the 1960s. In the 60s, the soundtrack changed. But I met a guy who grew up here then. He says it was still really lively. His name's Lance Burton. A lot was going on. We were listening to the Motown music, and we were, you know, in many ways, innocent youngsters. People cared about each other, and you didn't have to, like, put chains and gates and all this crap on the windows and doors. There were no guns. There were no shootings. And that was a very innocent part of, of our lifetime. Now let's go into the community center. Walk over and let yourself in through the red door. The one on the left is usually open, so just give it a tug. If it isn't open, just stand here and look on your phone. Once inside, you'll see two display cases in the hallway. Look at the one on your left. That's a poster of Miles Davis shushing us on the upper left. Now, look over at John Coltrane facing him on the right. Other relics from past and present sit between them. Roller skates, a biography of the former mayor, Willie Brown. He started as a lawyer in San Francisco, representing pimps, prostitutes, and the guy who ran a teen runaway shelter during the Summer of Love. And he later became the first black mayor of San Francisco. 
Now turn around and look at the display behind you. This window brings us up to the 1970s. The current supervisor of this district, London Breed, grew up just a couple blocks away in a packed apartment building in one of the public housing projects. She was born in 1974. I talked to her at a constituent event and asked her about growing up in this neighborhood. She painted a picture that was very different from the way Lance and Jack described their respective childhoods. She told me the city blocks right around this spot used to be vacant lots. She said kids like her ran past them as fast as they could on their way to school. We have the vibrant, exciting musical times of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then we have the empty lots of the 70s and 80s. And that story is our next eviction. An eviction not just of people, but also of buildings. Leave the community center and take a right. I'll tell you about it as we go. Keep going up Fillmore Street. When you get to the intersection with Eddy Street, go ahead and cross. Before we get to eviction number three, there's one more old photo I want you to see. It's up in this restaurant, 1300 Fillmore, on the right. So meet me down at the third big window and look inside. There's a really cool picture here on the wall across the lounge. If the curtains are closed, or if it feels awkward to peer in on people having a drink, look down at your phone to see the same picture. This is a streetscape photo that shows the neighborhood in 1946. This photo was taken by a guy named David Johnson. He was Ansel Adams' first black student, and he documented this neighborhood for decades. Johnson's old photographs show how alive the neighborhood was at the time. But even when blues and bop and life filled the streets, the neighborhood had already been condemned. The federal government had a plan to spruce up cities around the country that it called urban renewal. By the way, if you want to see more old photos of the neighborhood, this restaurant has a back wall with a treasure trove taken from the great book Harlem of the West, which has more of David's photos and other people's too. Ready to go? Let's keep walking down Fillmore in the same direction as before. Stop when you get to Panda Express. It's time to talk about eviction number three urban renewal. In 1948, just as Western Edition was hitting its groove, the government declared it urban blight and started the plan to destroy it. Some of the buildings around here may not have been in great shape after all the change and crowding they'd been through, but people around here think it seems obvious that Western Edition was targeted for teardown because it was a non-white neighborhood. It was basically a ripoff. That's Reverend Arnold Townsend. He's a prominent neighborhood activist who still works upstairs in the big blue building up ahead, even though he's in his 70s. Now you gotta understand, they come in with the federal right to declare eminent domain. That means they get your house if they want it, whether you want to sell or not, and they tell you what they're gonna pay for it. For almost a decade, this was all talk. But then, a guy ran for mayor on a promise to clean up the city. Gambling, blight, you name it. The demolition started the year he was elected, 1956. Over the next two decades, most of the homes and stores in Western Edition were bulldozed. 
almost 60 square blocks, including everything around us. The San Francisco Chronicle reported that 883 businesses were shuttered, 4,729 households were forced out, and 2,500 Victorian homes were destroyed. When they came, they gave you about 50 bucks and see you. Wouldn't want to be you. Look around you. Almost every single building that used to be here was pulverized. Reverend Townsend told me that, to him, it seemed like the government was just chasing black people out of town. It was ethnic cleansing by federal, state, and city edict. Simple as that. Now we can put nicer faces on it. That's what it really boiled down to. Just past Panda Express on the right, a little plaza opens up. Turn right into the plaza and walk your way to the very back. Look for a stone that says Waypack. It's in the back row, in front of the planter boxes, furthest away from the street. Waypack is a neighborhood organization that Reverend Townsend helped lead back in the big urban renewal fight. That's W-A-P-A-C. It stands for the Western Edition Project Area Committee. Stop when you find it and look back towards Fillmore Street. The government justified the destruction of Western Edition by calling it blight, but the people who lived here say it was very much alive. The blight? It came later, after the bulldozers. Are you at the Waypack plaque? Waypack tried to turn at least some of urban renewal into a participatory thing. They helped secure new building projects in empty lots and ensure that local workers got jobs. You can't bring a building back after a wrecking ball hits it. But the neighborhood did end up mobilizing to have more of a say in how things were rebuilt. Reverend Townsend was a big part of that effort. Look across the street and over to the right side corner. That's where the Waypack headquarters were. From this angle you can't see the sign, but the site of the organization that fought so hard to save the neighborhood is now a Starbucks. Reverend Townsend meets people for coffee there sometimes. When it was all over, only 4% of the uprooted businesses who were promised they could return actually came back. You see, someone said to me once many years ago, urban renewal era is the first period in history where the rich coveted the homes and the land of the poor. Now, we've always coveted their home. We always wanted their home. We had no money. We couldn't do nothing about it. Well, when people have money and power and they want what you have, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. And by the time we started resisting redevelopment, it was too late. Walk back out to Fillmore next to the subway. Take a right and keep going down the block. The next section of our detour concerns two very different temples, side by side that thrived in the 1960s and 70s, even as families moved out and buildings came down around them. In a way, they both became places of refuge for the people of Western Edition. That first temple is the Fillmore Auditorium. It's the yellow brick building across the street up ahead. It got its start as the Majestic Hall. From this angle, you can actually see its original name on the back of the building. The building is a survivor, though its owner wasn't as lucky. His name was Charles Sullivan, and he didn't grow up here. Sullivan's mother signed him away to an Alabama farmer at age two. He escaped Alabama as a teenager and made his way to San Francisco. Sullivan ran the Fillmore and Bob City, 
and attracted stars from around the country to come here. But then in 1965, Sullivan loaned his dance license to a guy named Bill Graham, who went on to become one of the most influential music promoters ever. When you get to the corner of Geary and Fillmore, stop for a moment. History remembers Bill Graham instead of Charles Sullivan, partly because Graham outlived him. Right in the middle of all of the redevelopment chaos and anger in the neighborhood in 1966, Sullivan was mysteriously shot through the heart. The case is still unsolved. You should be at the corner across from the Fillmore, looking up at the sign. Remember Jack Biancolana? His son Tony has worked at the Fillmore for 30 years. He and I talked upstairs at the bar while he prepped for a show. The beauty of this place in like the 60s, what Bill Graham was able to do was he was able to kind of incorporate the whole jazz scene of this neighborhood with the whole new rock scene of the neighborhood. So I think he kind of exposed people to music that maybe they would not have been exposed to otherwise. Perhaps the most famous example was The Grateful Dead. They mentioned John Coltrane's jams and improvisations as among their biggest influences. Grateful Dead shows at the Fillmore were not just about music. They were also about drugs. Acid tests. Someone would spike a garbage can full of Kool-Aid and everyone would share. This is kind of where the whole counterculture movement started. And, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened in this building. Now we're going to take a left. I want you to walk across Fillmore towards the auditorium, and then keep walking down the block. Stop at the flagpole outside the post office. Two doors down from the corner, there was an old temple. That temple became the home of one of the most famous things to come out of this neighborhood. In 1972, a preacher named Jim Jones moved his congregation into the heart of the city, in part because he wanted to recruit people from the Western edition. He, he was a kind of a dream figure for a lot of people. What they what they wanted in, in a church leader, what they wished they could, they could see more of. That's journalist Marshall Kilduff, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. He wrote a crucial expose of Jim Jones and his church, the People's Temple. He was a novel figure. I mean, here is a white guy with a largely black congregation. Here's a guy who, who wasn't just in the pulpit, but was on the streets protesting a, evictions and, and, and all kinds of stuff that was so important at the time. Jones was great at politics. After he helped get a mayor elected, he was named chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority. Pretty savvy move for a guy building a congregation in the middle of a neighborhood whose homes are being destroyed. This spot right here, where there's now a cold and sterile and dilapidated post office, is where Jones lured San Franciscans into an elaborate trap. Go ahead, walk inside, and check out the gift cards and rainbow packaging while we talk about what used to be here. If it's closed, you can just hang out front. We'll only be here for a couple of minutes. And as you walked in, there were like two or three doors that would open, and there was a red carpeted, probably 15-foot-long staircase, and then you'd be in the auditorium. Not many members of the People's Temple are around anymore, but I did track down one woman on the phone in San Diego. My name is Laura Johnston Cole, and I'm a survivor from Jonestown and People's Temple. The place Laura describes sounds nothing like this post office. It was kind of a, a rowdy, um, 
enthusiastic and I don't know how to explain it exactly. It just, once you got in there, you felt like you were in a whole other dimension. You weren't in San Francisco in a, you know, an old church building. You weren't there. You were really, you know, on some dance floor someplace just swinging yourself around or something. It was just a, a very engaging presence. It actually sounds a lot like a church service I went to this past Easter, a few blocks from here, with a huge multicultural choir and a pastor who made grand proclamations that simply belonging to the church would fix everything in your life. I found it kind of bizarrely vague and non-biblical compared to other religious services I've been to, but it didn't seem sinister. And that's how Laura felt. She liked that Jones lived an unpretentious life and had a congregation of all races. She was attracted to his social purpose. When I first came to the temple and I was an atheist, I looked at him, you know, I watched everything, how he walked, talked, sat, drove, lived, every, everything. For about two years, I just looked at everything, and then I was convinced, and then I stopped looking. A lot of people stopped looking. Jones had endeared himself to all the city's leaders. So when Marshall Kilduff started digging up bizarre stories about Jones faking healings and beating his followers, nobody wanted to listen. Then there was just disbelief. It was too too zany and crazy sounding to be true. Faith healing in this city, uh, uh, folks who folks who had all their money swiped and were beaten up on stage in front of the, the congregation to enforce this. And that doesn't sound like anything that really happens. At the same time Jones was growing his congregation here, he and his followers were also building a temple outpost more than 4,000 miles away in the jungles of Guyana. They called it Jonestown. Let's walk out of the post office, and I'll tell you more. Go out the door you came in and take a left. Keep going down the block towards that pedestrian overpass up ahead. Back in the city, Marshall was working on his expose. It turned out not to be the easiest story to write. The church found out that I was looking, and they, they heard, and there'd be midnight phone calls and crazy waves of letters, hundreds of letters, saying he's a great guy, leave him alone. Marshall's own paper pulled him off the story, in part because the city editor was an admirer of Jones. Marshall finally found a local magazine to run the story, but there was so much pressure on the publisher that she called Jones and read him Marshall's article before going to print. As he listened... Jones passed a note to his followers in the room that said, We leave tonight. That marks the fourth big eviction of our detour, an eviction of hundreds more Western Edition residents. And one that ended up costing them their lives. We're going to cross Steiner here. See that spiral ramp up ahead of us? We're going to go walk up there. You may see folks sleeping in the shelter of the ramp, but just walk past. More than a year after Marshall's article, a congressman took a fact-finding trip to Guyana. And that's where things really went nuts. He was shot and killed by Jones's followers. Later that day, Jones forced his congregants to kill themselves in what he called an act of revolutionary suicide. Others call it murder. 918 people, about a third of them children, died. They died at Jonestown, mostly from cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Because the bodies were left for days in the heat of the South American jungle, many of the dead were never identified. They were eventually buried in a mass grave in Oakland. Pretty much everyone in Western Edition at that time knew someone who had died in Guyana. 
So how did Laura escape? She was down there in Guyana, too. I absolutely loved Guyana, every part of it. I would never have left it. It was just wonderful. Laura says that the only reason she's still alive is because she'd been sent to the city to do some errands. Actually, she says she has a hunch that Jones sent her to the city because she was such a loyal follower that when the order to kill themselves came, she probably would have done it, even over the telephone. But she wasn't the only one in the city that day, and another guy, someone with a little bit more fight, persuaded her and most of the rest of them not to kill themselves. It was Jones's own son. That all takes a moment to process, doesn't it? When you're ready, keep walking across the bridge, away from the People's Temple. Follow the ramp down and stop at the corner. You might have heard the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. We've talked about Kool-Aid a couple times now, but this isn't a reference to acid tests at Grateful Dead shows. It's about Jonestown. The reason we say, don't drink the Kool-Aid, is because blindly buying the doctrine that your organization or government is selling could be a very bad idea. Keep following the ramp as it curves to the left, down to street level. Meet me on the corner. There's a Grateful Dead song that starts out, If I had my way, I would tear this whole building down. They played it at the very last show at the Winterland Ballroom, which is our next stop. When the Fillmore got too small for Bill Graham, he moved his concerts over here, to an old ice skating rink. At the bottom of the ramp, I want you to go up Steiner. Geary Street, that's the big noisy one we just walked over, will be behind you. Walk up Steiner, wait for me on the next corner. I'll show you where Winterland used to be. I could list famous musicians who played Winterland all day. But just within the venue's final month, there were concerts by The Ramones, Smokey Robinson, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. The Grateful Dead was basically the home team at Winterland. They played 59 shows there, and their Skull and Roses banner was hung from the rafters. Joel Selvin, the music critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, was at Winterland's last show. He said it was fueled by cocaine and then tamed with acid when the Hell's Angels got too rowdy. The dead played from midnight to 6 a.m. When they were done, Bill Graham served a hearty breakfast of ham, eggs, and champagne. So where was this legendary venue? It was right across the street at 2000 Post. Now it's some fancy condos. There's not even a marker. But you can look down at your phone for an old photo. Let's cross both Post and Steiner, so you end up on the corner opposite where we are now. Meet me at that little blue and red box on a pole on the corner. Winterland isn't totally forgotten. If you go on the Internet Archive, you'll find 401 different recordings of Grateful Dead shows at Winterland. Once we're at the corner with the blue and red box, we're going to walk on Post Street. There's a big beige apartment building on the corner. Keep that on your left and start walking down the block. A bizarre thing came out of the battles between the government and the community later on in urban renewal. Old Victorians that were relatively intact were lifted up and moved to more convenient locations, often just a block or two away. 
So in the Western Edition, if you see a big, heavy, ornate 75-year-old building sitting on a lot, remember, it might have been built somewhere else. Here's Reverend Townsend. You know, we'd come out at 2 in the morning sometime, and there'd be a Victorian rumbling down the street at about 2 or 3 miles an hour, which is a pretty impressive sight. Around here, you might come across a lonely Victorian on a block of housing projects. Or maybe you'll find a whole pocket of them rescued together. You'd never know they were carted across town on trucks. So here's a special treat. Unlike so many of the neighborhood's famous buildings that no longer exist, Bop City is still here. At least the Bop City building is. It was one of these historical Victorians picked up and set down for next generations to find. It's like an Easter egg. We're going to go there now. Walk by the Burger King on your left. Across Fillmore Street, you'll see a big tan block of a building up on the corner. That's a really nice Indian restaurant called Dosa. It was a bank before, and it still kind of looks like a giant vault plop down in the street. Cross the street, and then take a left, so you're walking right in front of the entrance of Dosa. I want you to stop at the house tucked behind the restaurant. It'll be 1714 Fillmore. It might not seem like there's much going on in this building, but that's a very recent change. This one building, it's basically the ultimate example of our story about rapid transformation that comes about by eviction. This is the fifth and final eviction on our walk. If you want, take a seat on the stoop. This building's been a lot of things. A Japanese drugstore, and then a waffle shop, and then Bop City, a legendary late-night club that was tucked into a back room on the ground floor. I know this looks like a house, not a jazz club, but it was the very same place. Bop City was special. It was home to so many of the greats during the 15 years it was open, until 1965. Jack Biancolana used to go there when he was 15 with a fake ID. After all the bars and everything closed, Bob City would open up and you'd go in and pay, I think we used to pay a dollar to get in. And then they gave you a cup, coffee cup pitcher and you brought your own bottles in, you know. You poured your own whiskey or whatever you wanted to drink. Jack remembers seeing Duke Ellington and Chico Hamilton and many more. He saw Charlie Parker twice in one night, first at a strip club at North Beach, and then back at home at Bob City. And Dexter Gordon was in there, and uh, this little alto player, Pony Poindexter. A lot of heavy. I, one night I looked up there, I heard this guy playing, and I said, oh, geez, I wonder who that is. He's good. And it was John Coltrane. After the club closed and the building was moved, a bookstore took up residence here. Marcus Books, named for the black nationalist Marcus Garvey, was the oldest black-themed bookstore in the country. It was here for 30 years, a Western edition institution. Until recently, the Johnson family owned the building and lived upstairs. But they got foreclosed on a couple years ago, and the building was sold. The Johnsons raised money from the community to try to buy it back, but the new owners weren't interested. So they kept the store open, but stopped paying rent during a year and a half stalemate. It was around that time that I first met Karen Johnson. I came into the store one day and was treated to a mystical, historical, and cultural lecture about black people and women and the difference between humanity and mankind 
and the forgotten and ignored geniuses of Egypt and Motown. More than two hours later, I stumbled out of the shop, blinking in the sunlight and vowing to come back. But not long after that, the Johnson family found themselves locked out. And a couple weeks after that, the inventory and signage were removed. In the months since then, the friendly benches in the courtyard were ripped out, and the building's familiar lavender paint job was changed. And even somehow the street number was reassigned. It's almost like they're trying to wipe out the character of the place. So yes, this is the very latest Western edition eviction. I called Karen Johnson to check in. She told me it really hurt when they closed her store. You know, you hang tough, you fight, go to court, you fight, you lose, you try again, lose, you try again, you know. That's one step at a time, but that really, that really took some healing. And now I'm getting my bounce back and looking forward to getting in touch with people and finding out to what people want the bookstore to be. She still hopes to reopen Marcus Books. Maybe in the same location, but possibly in a larger building where they could offer continuing education classes and live music. We'll hear a little bit more about that later. Let's stand up now and walk down Fillmore, back towards Dosa. Stop at the corner. Remember the photo we looked at when we were standing next to the restaurant? It was taken on this very corner in 1946. It's on your phone now if you want to see it again. A lot has changed, but if you look closely, you can see the Fillmore Auditorium is on the corner. Back then, it was a roller skating rink. Cross Post Street and keep walking down Fillmore. We're going to cross Geary up ahead as well. You know, the present can seem inevitable. In the present, we just know what is. We have no idea what could have been. And often in the Western edition, It seems like the present moment is the most boring one, unable to stack up against history. But walking these streets has taught me that the past and the present and the future of the Western edition are still settling themselves out. Nothing here is fixed, not even bland concrete buildings. Geary should be right up here. You'll actually have to cross it twice because of the redevelopment project that turned this into a little highway in the center of the city. People call it a sort of Mason-Dixon line between the fancy parts of town up the hill behind you and the heart of the Western Edition in front of you. I'll meet you at the other side. Now that you know so much about this neighborhood's past, let's talk about Western Edition in the present day. The area to your left is Japantown. It's kind of a commemorative neighborhood, much smaller than it used to be pre-World War II. The basic story is, Japantown was established as a cultural center after people of Japanese descent came back from the internment camps, even though many no longer had homes here. It's well worth a wander, especially if you're hungry. But right now, let's head back in the direction we came from to wrap up today's detour. Once you're on the other side of Geary, keep walking on Fillmore, back the way we came. The city kept bumbling through its urban renewal efforts long after the bulldozer era ended. The last gasp was setting up funding for a so-called historic jazz district that was only completed in 2009. But that didn't work out too well. Those city-backed clubs weren't evicted, but already they've shut down, gone bankrupt, and changed hands. Some things in the neighborhood are doing well. When you get up to the sign that says Worry Food Market, 
stop and look across the street. You're looking at the impossibly hip and hard to get reservations for State Bird Provisions, one of the hottest restaurants in the country. It's the one with the wreaths in the window. They're doing so well at State Bird, they've opened a new place right next door. It's called The Progress, which was the original name of the building when it was a theater. They're trying to preserve as many of the old bones and materials as they can. Let's keep walking down Fillmore. We're coming to the end of our detour. This should all look familiar. You're headed to the Fillmore Center. Nine acres, smack in the middle of the neighborhood, prime property. After the bulldozers tore everything down, this space sat here empty. For an incredible two decades, it was just another empty lot that the Western Edition was torn up to create. When you get to the Panda Express, cross the street and walk towards the metal sculpture in the plaza. Cross the street at the Panda Express and then go up the four steps to the left of the fountain. Walk over until you're standing directly behind the statue looking up at it. You'll be facing the corner. One of the challenges of visiting this neighborhood is that besides the painted ladies, there just aren't many hooks to hold. There's no Fillmore Auditorium gift shop to wander into. The chain restaurants don't evoke the old character. Many of the people who live here are upset about what it's come to be. Marcus Books is gone. On weekends, for a few hours during the farmer's market, this plaza comes to life with live music. Other times, it can seem weirdly corporate and sterile. You should be standing underneath the tall silver statue. I was not super impressed to learn that the sculptor had only visited the neighborhood twice before being paid quite a bunch of money to make it. The statue is called Hardbop. The artist says it's meant to evoke rhythm and notes in a musical staff. I don't know, maybe. One of the local merchants told me she'd rather see a statue of Jerry Garcia, or a recognizable jazz musician, something that tourists could take pictures with. It seems cheesy, but I could understand the appeal. Now turn around and look into the plaza behind the statue. See the sunburst of inlaid rays paving the plaza? There's pink, khaki, and green pebbled rays. The middle ray should be right in front of you. It's green with pebbles in it. It's pointing the exact trajectory I want you to walk. Follow it past where it ends, at that same angle, into the opening between the buildings. There's a secret place I want to take you to. When the community finally started getting more of a say in redevelopment, African-American leaders sought to have this area brought back to life by a black developer. But plan after plan fell through, in part because banks weren't willing to lend to the black-led developer groups. Eventually, a bid did get through. The first residents moved in in 1989. Keep walking that same direction. Keep walking straight past the Fitness SF sign. There should be trees and benches on your left and a building that says 1410 Steiner on your right. Just keep walking. The Fillmore Center ended up costing more than $300 million to build, and the ownership changed a bunch of times, so it doesn't have much personality. 
But there is one spot I really like, and it's totally unexpected. Find your way to the bench next to the reflecting pool. Hopefully the waterfall is going. If the bench is open, take a seat. If not, find another spot to take a rest. I only discovered this place after walking through the Fillmore dozens of times. I think it's the perfect spot to close out our detour. Karen Johnson, heir to Marcus Books, told me about this very detailed dream she had long ago. She's been obsessed with it for years. It's about being born a second time. In the dream, she climbs out of the womb, then finds herself pulled up to the top of a tree with help from lots of people whose dreams are intertwined with hers. It's like I was bringing their dreams up with me. They all carried me up to the top. And because it's um, a dream about rebirth, I'm an infant when I get to the top. The dream ends at a party. Now, years later, Karen says she's realized this dream could be a parable for the rebirth of Marcus Books. Maybe the eviction was temporary. Maybe this period of rest and mourning will be worth it once Marcus Books comes back to the Western edition. Karen told me she'd like to get a hold of the big abandoned brick building up the street, the one that used to power the cable cars. I gotta say, that would be a pretty amazing rebirth in the body of the old. But who knows, maybe that won't happen. And maybe this doesn't need a positive ending to be a good story. When I was recording Reverend Townsend at his office across the street from here, we talked for a long time, longer than either of us had budgeted for. People started coming in to ask him his opinion on other projects and to grab him for other meetings. So I told him I'd narrow down my questions to just one or two more. But when Reverend Townsend went on a bit of a rant about the state of the world, I said, I don't want to end on a down note. His reply got to me. See, those are not sad notes for me. Whenever we start to confront our realities and our shortcomings and our problems, whenever we start to confront them realistically, that's an upbeat for me. That's an ending on an up note. It's a good point, and I hope this time we've spent together qualifies as realistic. So let's take Reverend Townsend's advice and end here. I'm Liz Gaines. Thanks for joining me on this detour.